Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. Hello. In this podcast, we're going to be thinking about the analysing quadrant of the map of uncertainty in medicine and looking at the functional ways through uncertainties in that quadrant. Analysing uncertainties are those that give you the what do you do and you don't know what to do moment when there's one clinician and one patient and the diagnosis is not very clear. There are specific skills that can help to unlock this what do you do and you don't know what to do situation. The clinician may need to stand back mentally and choose an approach which is most relevant based on the information that's already there, the cues and clues in the history or examination, and bearing in mind the patient's own thoughts, concerns and worries. The skills needed to find these bits of information out are of course covered in TALC modules 1, 2 and 3, and those who have good relationship building skills and information gathering skills will often find that they have fewer problems in the analysing quadrant. The key skills needed to work through difficulties in diagnosis include hypothetico-deductive reasoning, using restricted rule-out, ruling in or ruling out things together with diagnostic safety netting, a process called trust and verify, and sharing the clinical reasoning process with the patient. Clinical guidelines, algorithms and decision tools can often be helpful and frequently exploring the emotional content of the consultation will help to make things much clearer. Having some situational awareness skills can have surprising benefits for accurate diagnosis and being able to widen your view and explain and manage functional symptoms can also help enormously. It sometimes happens that clinicians go through a full systems review and ask lots of closed questions about everything they can think of to try and make sense of things. And this often doesn't work. One of my colleagues described this approach as like playing the pen and paper game of battleships. The clinician might ask closed questions like, is it worse when you lie down? But without a clear structure, this can be a fairly random process. What's more, inexperienced clinicians spend much of their thinking time wondering what question to ask next. This actually interferes with their abilities to listen carefully to what the patient is saying right now. This has the effect of reducing diagnostic accuracy because important information is simply missed and not heard. If we're not listening carefully, this reduces diagnostic accuracy. Remaining quiet and listening to the patient helps to avoid premature closure, in other words, fixing on something before we have enough information. This is also known as search satisfying, which means fixing on a diagnosis too early on in the consultation before all the information is known. Information that does not fit the initial proposed diagnosis may then be wrongly discounted, leading to error. How can a clinician develop hypotheses about the cause of the problem and then test them in a sensible way? Firstly, the exact nature of the patient's experience needs to be fully understood, which means listening hard. Sometimes feeling overwhelmed by vague symptoms with many possible causes can mean that the clinician does not fully explore the symptom itself. For example, if a patient feels dizzy, is that really a sense of depersonalisation or of rotation, which means true vertigo, 
or is it more like the non-specific dizziness of postural hypotension? Using open questions and open directed questions, as recommended in TALC module 3, can help to get more information flowing. Using regular summarisation and checking for accuracy that you've really understood what the patient is saying not only helps the patient to know that you are really listening, which is therapeutic in itself, but also gives the clinician time to think. And by describing and summarising the symptoms, this may help to make them more intelligible. A helpful initial way to order thoughts, particularly about vague symptoms, can be to use Marshall Marinka's analysis of the roles of the specialist and the generalist, and to take a generalist route first. The generalist's task is to marginalise danger, explore probability and manage uncertainty. Marginalising danger means care being careful to identify the key things that you mustn't miss, serious problems that need immediate attention. These are sometimes popularly called red flag symptoms and there are also red flag signs which will help the clinician exclude immediate serious possibilities. Exploring probability means contextualising the patient's complaints and this means understanding the patient as an individual and understanding how their age, their work, their social position, their previous illnesses and so on may influence the kind of problem that they are developing now. Exploring symptoms and signs that could point to serious disorder can help to rule out the most significant or serious diseases. If such symptoms or signs are absent at the time of the consultation, then a significant condition could be considered temporarily ruled out, although they may, symptoms may develop later, of course, and that needs further exploration. Managing uncertainty in this context means acknowledging that a range of possible outcomes remain, even if serious causes have temporarily been ruled out. Uncertainty needs to be actively managed, which is usually through very effective safety netting approaches. The clinician needs to use the skills of TALC2 to express empathy and concern for the patient, while using the safety netting skills of TALC6 to work out the best way to follow up the patient and to know what to do if things change. TALC Module 4 has useful skills that can be used during the consultation when talking about uncertainty with patients. In textbooks, the symptoms and signs of illnesses are usually presented as if they're clear-cut, with symptoms and signs predominating in the descriptions. In daily practice, things are often not so clear-cut. Diseases may have untypical symptoms or physical signs, and the test results may be confusing or non-specific. The dysfunctional way out of these situations is often referring somebody on to somewhere else, hoping that the emergency room will solve the problem, and so on. However, we also need to be aware that for many illnesses and diseases to develop, time is important. One approach that can help is to consider that there are two different thinking processes, and clinicians may need to ponder which is most appropriate for them at this given time. Firstly, there might be a need to rule out serious disease, such as diabetes or major sepsis or meningitis. There can be many causes for a mild febrile illness in a child, many of which are mild or self-limiting. Some of them might be the start of meningitis, but doing a lumbar puncture on every child with a fever is not a good way forwards. Restricted rule-out 
can focus on one or two of the most serious problems and attempt to rule them out either through the history and examination or with some simple tests such as the dipstick of the urine. In general, if there's no ketosis and no glycosuria, it's unlikely that diabetes is a serious problem at this time. Obviously, restricted rule out is often only a temporary process. The key skill is also to create a safety net in the consultation, discussing very carefully any encouraging signs of mild illness, but also highlighting the signs to look out for that may indicate deterioration and the need for a further evaluation. Being clear that the situation is currently uncertain helps the patient to be more powerfully involved in monitoring what happens next and taking appropriate action. A different but related thinking approach is to consider what can be ruled in. For example, a very high ESR in the presence of headache and scalp tenderness tends to rule in the possibility of temporal arteritis, at least until proved otherwise. Similarly, testing the urine for glucose and finding large amounts of glucose and ketones can rule in a diagnosis of diabetes and suggest a situation of ketoacidosis. However, ruling in some diseases would need very invasive tests, such as lumbar punctures, which are both invasive, unpleasant and unnecessary if the illness is in fact mild. So ruling in tests need to be chosen carefully. The benefits of a rule-in or rule-out approach are amplified with proper safety netting. True safety netting is much more than a case of saying, come back if you're not better at the end of the consultation, and is covered in detail in TALC Module 6. Safety netting aids the diagnostic process, as well as providing a way to safely catch patients as their illness develop, because the course of an illness at the beginning is intrinsically unknown and unpredictable. If the doctor shares her clinical reasoning and most likely diagnosis with the patient, they can also share their planning of what might happen next. The clinician can be asking themselves, if I've made the right diagnosis or assessment, what will I expect to happen? What would tell me that I'm wrong? What will happen if I'm wrong? And what would need to happen in those circumstances? These questions can then inform planning for what might happen next. This approach helps to increase patients' understanding and empowers them to take the right action in relation to relevant symptoms and timeframes. This detailed safety netting should also clarify which element of the healthcare system should be accessed for further assistance. We should not underestimate the diagnostic importance of test and treat strategies or of watchful waiting. In both cases, the clinician will be more effective when accepting and staying with uncertainty rather than trying to resolve and dismiss the uncertainty by immediately jumping to a firm but possibly premature diagnosis or course of action. Another approach that can be helpful is summed up in the Russian military proverb which says trust but verify. Very often clinicians will rely on fast type 1 thinking using rules of thumb which are also known by the fancy name of heuristics which means practical reasoning. While the clinician may trust their initial diagnostic judgment they will also verify it by adequate safety netting and by checking and acting on any deviation from the expected path of the illness. 
The clinician's inner alarm bell needs to be honed and tested through clinical experience. So what kind of observations could trigger an inner alarm bell? Well, if the diagnosis is correct, things will probably proceed as expected. But if resolution seems too slow or unexpected new symptoms arise, or if the patient unexpectedly becomes even worse, then a change in management is indicated. Sometimes the clinician's inner alarm bell is calibrated to go off too soon, which might lead to over-investigation, which brings its own problems. Alternatively, the alarm bell may come too late, which leads to misdiagnoses. Clinicians need to reflect on the outcomes of their diagnostic conclusions all the time to develop clinical expertise and to gain confidence in the accuracy of their judgments. Reflection raises awareness of the situations that could trigger a reaction that is too hasty or too slow. When that inner alarm bell rings, clinicians need to reflect on why that's happened. Were there alarming symptoms or signs? Or were there more subtle clues from the patient that some other diagnosis needs to be considered? For example, less common diseases or an escalation in severity? Or was it the clinician's own need for certainty in an inherently uncertain situation? No one can predict how a very mild set of symptoms will develop for the future, but appropriate verification through safety netting will usually reveal those situations that need detailed attention. And one way to do this is to make sure that the patient contacts you if certain things happen, for example, a deterioration symptoms, or unless certain things happen, such as a resolution and getting better. The wording matters quite a lot here and can enable more effective safety netting to occur. When talking with patients, it's very effective to share your own clinical reasoning, particularly if you're in doubt and even if you can't remember all the details about a clinical topic that's not your favourite field of expertise, go back to basics and share your thinking with the patient. When it's a mystery, go back to the history is a useful aphorism here, although I would perhaps say when it's a mystery, go back to the story, listen harder. Trying to understand how the problem started, what makes it worse or better, what indications there may be of serious disease, and understanding what the patient has tried already will often be very helpful. And explaining your thoughts and observations, and explaining the way you're thinking, will help the patient to understand what you're doing. This will also help the clinician to be curious about and explore the patient's own concerns and worries about ideas about what he needs from the consultation. Does the patient want an actual diagnosis? Or do they need a sick note or advice about whether or not to pay for some physiotherapy? Explaining your observations and their meaning can really help patients to understand better and help to mitigate uncertainty. For example, if a patient comes very concerned about pneumonia because they've had it before or because a family member has recently suffered from it, it can be helpful to go through in detail and say, well, I'm not sure if you have pneumonia at the moment, but you're not got a fever, your pulse is normal. When I measure the oxygen in your blood, it's normal. Examining your chest, it sounds very clear. There's plenty of air moving in and out of your chest and there's no abnormal noises. And your pulse rate is completely normal. This tends to suggest that you haven't got pneumonia at the moment, but if there are changes in those things, we can think again. 
This kind of sharing of clinical reasoning should be followed by an invitation for the patient to respond with an open question such as, what do you think about that? Or what's your response to those thoughts? Because that will help us to understand in more detail if there's anything else we need to talk about. If things are really unclear, the clinician can go back to basics and think about the sort of surgical sieve and ask themselves, is this condition congenital or was it acquired later on in life? Which system of the body does it mainly seem to affect? And what type of disease process is going on here? Is this an inflammatory process? Is this a malignant process? Has there been some trauma or injury? To what extent is the patient's emotional state also impacting on their experience? Being able to think about your thinking and choose an appropriate method can make uncertainty a lot easier to deal with. In modern clinical practice, we also have a lot of things to help us. Clinical decision tools, algorithms and guidelines can all help us work out what to do and what to think about particular situations. Saying something like, I don't know what's wrong with you, doesn't usually inspire confidence in most patients. Talc module four has a whole chapter on how to talk about uncertainty. But if we say something like, there's a special process for working this out. Can I load the right information on the computer and we can go through it together? Demonstrates competence. You know the patient has a condition that needs careful assessment. You know where to find the right tool and you're prepared to share your reasoning and explain things. Examples could include the Wells score for thinking about DVTs. This approach makes for the kind of clinician that patients are keen to interact with. It's important to be sure that you're using the right kind of algorithm though and the right kind of scoring system. It's no good using a scoring system for melanoma if the lesion your patient has is flaky, itchy, symmetrical and probably caused by eczema. The emotional context of the consultation can often be really important in making an accurate diagnosis. Making a diagnosis or even excluding one means paying attention to the patient as a whole and picking up clues and cues about the whole picture. Clinicians readily do this for physical disturbances. If a patient has a limp or if they wince when you touch a particular part of their skin, you take that as a clue or cue that the affected part was the leg or the painful limb. However, sometimes we overlook similarly important clues and cues about emotional components of the consultation. If the consultation is going round and round in circles where there's no clear diagnosis, it's often because the patient doesn't feel that they've been heard properly or that they have not voiced an important concern. Often it's the emotional component that has been ignored. Patients give us all sorts of clues that their psychological or social situation is not satisfactory and you ignore aspects of the consultation like this at your peril. For example, if somebody looks away, bites their lip, or they have tears in their eyes. Perhaps an attentive listener might note that somebody has a very flat, quiet voice, or they sigh a lot, or they don't smile very much or make eye contact. Perhaps the words they use may betray a sense of resentment or anger towards someone. Paying attention to these clues and acknowledging them by commenting that somebody seems upset, or that they seem particularly concerned about what's going on, can help to open up the discussion. What can a clinician do with these sorts of clues and cues? They can be handled in three ways. 
You can pick them up immediately and explore them with the patient, or you can park them in your mind to refer back to later on in the consultation, or you can put them in the whole context of the consultation, using them to build up a full picture. There's more information about this in TALP modules 2 and 3, and also in the book Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine. If clinicians see themselves as only having a role in diagnosing and treating physical disease, they may feel that these clues about the patient's emotional and social status are irrelevant. However, making an accurate assessment of these other issues will facilitate the treatment of any disease that may be present and will direct the clinician's attention to psychological disturbances such as anxiety or depression. This will help the clinician build an effective therapeutic relationship with the patient and will mean that any other aspect of their care can be negotiated effectively and they're more likely to comply with treatment or attend for appropriate investigations. Situational judgment is often thought more to apply to organisational issues. But working as a clinician is rarely about looking after one patient at a time. Everyone has to work in clinics where there are routinely more patients than can be comfortably seen. Hospital wards or nursing homes may have many patients who need attention. Even doing planned elective work may be interrupted by emergencies or unexpected occurrences that can derail the time we have. The skills that can help this are collectively referred to as situational awareness and the outcomes from the skills lead to situational judgments. These skills are tested in many medical recruitment programmes because the ability to bring together disparate information about a situation and to use it to make a sensible judgment about what to do can reveal quite a lot about the clinician's assessment, prioritising and thinking skills. So what are these skills? I would sum them up as being monitoring the baseline, being aware of our bias towards normality and avoiding focus lock. Monitoring the baseline means allowing ourselves to scan our whole environment regularly and ask, is everything generally okay? And is there anything anomalous, unusual or threatening happening here? Having a kind of open awareness may mean that when you're doing a home visit, a vicious dog blocking the path is observed a bit ahead of time so that it doesn't bite you. But in a ward round, seeing nurses run away to the far end of the ward might mean that there's a patient in distress or collapsed. In all settings, clinicians need to have some way of mentally sweeping their environment and assessing the overall situation. We all have a bias towards normality. We'd prefer everything to be business as usual, and we can easily have a tendency to ignore signs of change or impending difficulty, which may be threatening, difficult to deal with, or outside our comfort zones. We want things to be okay, so we selectively look for evidence that things are, are okay and obscure other symptoms and other signals. Some recent high-profile cases of medical error have occurred when people have convinced themselves that a patient's clinical course is in fact all right and going as normal, when in fact the patient is exhibiting increasing distress or symptoms that may be expressed in unusual ways that nonetheless require urgent attention. The third aspect arises from our needs for concentration and focus. All clinical work needs good concentration, but if the focus gets too narrow, there's a risk of ignoring other aspects of the problem or things going on elsewhere in the environment. A clinician who focuses on one element of the history 
may not notice hints in what the patient is saying about some other aspect, for example, their suicidal risk. After asking a question, a clinician may ignore or not notice a hesitation, indicating there's more information forthcoming. For example, when patients say things like, well, no, not really, which really means, yes, actually, there's more I need to tell you. If focus lock is combined with a bias towards normality, situations may develop in seemingly unexpected ways. But in fact, the signs were there, but either not noticed or selectively excluded so that they were not acted on properly. Clinicians have to manage the competing requirements of effectiveness, which means doing the right thing, efficiency, which means doing the right things in the right way with the least effort or expense, together with fairness to all of the patients, which means addressing needs not just once, and also meeting the waiting time targets. This is why clinical work is complex and interesting. Of course, sometimes the patient's problems are not straightforward, and many have functional symptoms or persistent, distressing physical symptoms which do not have a formal pathological basis. Talc module five has a chapter which details many of the communication skills needed for this. Considering this in the diagnostic situation means thinking about those patients who quite commonly turn up in general practice, who have already been seen in one or more specialist clinics and who are now discharged because the specialist has done all they can. This does not mean the patient is cured, healed or even diagnosed. However, they come back for ongoing care. The option of referral may be closed off as well if the patient has been formally discharged. There are two specific skills that can help here. Firstly, building the relationship with the patient using the skills of TALC Module 1 and in particular really trying to understand the patient as an individual rather than a set of symptoms or a puzzle to be explored can mean that we get a more holistic understanding. This creates a more therapeutic relationship. What is the patient's life actually like? What impact are the symptoms having? What would they themselves think they need from their care? Whatever the underlying reasons for the patient's symptoms, developing a therapeutic alliance with the patient, knowing them, offering support, being genuinely concerned about them and caring for them will enable greater clarity about the functional ways through. All clinicians will care for patients whose symptoms are functional rather than caused by damage to the structure or physiology of the body. This does not mean that these are so-called medically unexplained symptoms, although that terminology is sometimes used. It isn't helpful to clinicians or patients. Rather, many of these are disorders of how the body functions. They're distortions of physiology rather than structure. And these can be explained in ways that are useful to patients who are struggling with the impact of their symptoms. Using physiological explanations and physiological problem descriptions can help patients manage functional symptoms by avoiding what many patients perceive as blaming and shaming psychological explanations and also lead to useful strategies for pain management, for example. So some useful phrases could include, for example, in abdominal pains that are clearly not due to intestinal structural problems, the clinician could use phrases such as, 
your intestines or your guts are particularly sensitive to the stimuli from food and other sources. There's spasm and relaxation. The spasm causes pain, which is relieved by the relaxation of the gut. For headaches, phrases such as tension type headache, medication overuse headache, or increased sensitivity in the neck muscles can help patients have a clearer understanding of how things are going. And for joint pain, using phrases such as wear and repair processes is better than talking about wear and tear, which sounds depressing and damaging. Talc modules four and five have a lot of skills which help to explain things to patients in more effective and constructive ways. Look out for another podcast in the Analyzing Quadrant where I'll be discussing this with Dr. Alison Lee. Thank you for listening to Talc 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.